we did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. Of course, there's been blunders within the SQ, but we have to look at the things clearly here. The government may be trying to get a message to the SQ as the who's boss, but the primary impression I have that ordinary people are being taken for fools by a government that's trying to convince them public commissions solve problems. Since the 60s, we've been having public inquiries, and what do we have to show for it? Nothing. It's always been the same damn thing. Commissions take place long after the events that sparked them, usually after measures have already been taken to make sure the events don't reoccur, or when most of the people involved are no longer in the same position. And when, at last, they produce the report, those results are usually consigned to the waste basket. Andre Perra, Allo Police, 1997. The specific commission in question by Andre Perra was the Poitras Inquiry. Former Chief Justice of the Quebec Superior Court. Lawrence Poitras had been charged by the Quebec provincial government to look into the investigative practices of its police force, the Sarté du Québec. Specifically, there were allegations of evidence tampering during a drug investigation and indications that the SQ's high command attempted to derail an internal investigation into the matter that has simply become known as the Maddox Affair. This is who killed Teresa. Today I'm going to attempt to can-splain to you what uh, what was the Maddox affair and the Poitras commission and I, I know I know I know some of you will say John John no don't do it don't don't go there that's a suicide mission man uh, th- this might be in in parts some uh, dry stuff uh, I'll, I'll try to keep things moving and uh, and entertaining but it, it's important stuff the implications and the meanings um, had uh, 
far-reaching effects uh and like like most things uh i'm i'm not going to tell you everything you have to do some work uh on your own and and think about it because Mannix and Poitras informs uh, and is informed by um a lot of the stuff a lot of the cases we've uh, focused on in the the last years uh on uh, my website and in this podcast places can be characters in stories buildings and bridges can be characters the saint lawrence river is a character montreal is a character in today's story the institution itself the sarté de quebec and its representation in the city of montreal that looming headquarters overlooking the Jacques Cartier Bridge at 1701 Parthenay is a character. In this episode, there isn't a couple of bad apples on which we can focus and vilify. In this episode, the rot comes from the entire institution. We'll get to the Maddox affair, but first some background. As we saw with uh, last time with L'Affaire Dupont, this was not the first time the Quebec police had been called into question for their practices. Uh, L'Affaire Dupont consisted ultimately of three separate inquiries spanning four decades. Just two years prior to the Poitras Commission in 1995, there had been an inquiry into the SQ's conduct when they conducted a raid on the entire police force of the town of Chambly, over allegations of corruption and uh, links to organized crime. There had also been an inquiry in 1983 into the death of SQ Corporal Marcel Lemay during uh, an exchange of gunfire uh, at the Mohawk uh, barricades during the Oka crisis in 1990. And then finally, many were voicing concerns that Poitras was a duplication of efforts as uh, there had just been in 1996 an inquiry which assessed the uh, efficiency of investigative branches of all Quebec police forces. That commission, the Belmar Commission, concluded that police detectives needed to be better educated, better trained, and more closely supervised. Quebec loves its public inquiries. There's yeah, apart from the police ones that I just cited, it goes well beyond that. There's no shortage of public inquiries or calls for public inquiries. And uh, I'll highlight for you some past bromides. Uh, who remembers uh, Premier uh, Goodbow's 1943 call for an inquiry into hospital nurseries? Hands up? Anyone? Okay. Or what about the call for a securities inquiry when the Royal Trust Company moved its assets from Montreal to Kingston on the eve of the general election? Anybody? What about the Wagner report into police use of excessive force during the 1964 Queen's visit to Quebec City? No one. Remember the Otto Lang inquiry into the fully bilingual air traffic controllers? Didn't think so. My personal favorite is the Malouf Commission's public inquiry into the 1976 Montreal Olympics. And I'll, I'll set the stage for you. It's, um, and, and before I do, I'm particularly um, 
attuned to construction inquiries in Quebec, and you'll find out why. But we touched on this last time with uh, L'Affaire Dupont, and, and now we're, we're, we're going to hit it head on. So it's 1977, and Quebec is waking up from the fact that they, they probably overpaid for the Olympics in the prior year. Uh, the mayor is Jean uh, Drapeau, and the, the Olympics are his second act, his first big act being the World's Fair Expo 67, which was supposed to cost taxpayers about $120 million, uh, but the price tag um, for the Olympics uh, reached $1.6 billion. Uh, so the, the Parti Québécois, they're fresh off their first provincial win, and... Uh, René Lévesque, who's premier, launches an inquiry into the Olympic Games, and he appoints Justice uh, Albert Malouf, the head of a three-man commission. They're usually three people. And among its findings, these are howlers. Uh, number one, all construction contracts over a million had to have a special government approval. Um, this safeguard was circumvented by contractors who simply asked for multiple contract increases under a million. That's an old game. I, I see that myself um, where I work uh, in the government. People do that all the time. <laughs> it's age old, man. Um, uh, the, the Olympic project was completely controlled by one man, a French architect named Robert uh, Talibert. Uh, number three, the, the company that won the contract for the parking bid with a bid of $3.7 filed multiple contract increases and ended up getting paid $9.7 million. What is that, like a 300% 300, 300 increase or something? And uh, the contract was not executed until six months after the Olympic Games were completed. Uh I've seen that one, too, in my uh, daily work. <laughs> um, number four, the chief contractors, um, Forms du Québec, Stationnement, Avio, uh, Les Forms du Québec Construction, Sabris Limited, Dubé and Dubé, Bombardier. Yeah, yeah, you heard that right. If, if you're from Quebec, <laughs> that's going to ring a bell. Bombardier. Uh, Roski Limited, Straightenor, all ended up earning profits disproportionate with the services rendered. Um, and there's, uh, for, for, for those in Canada, there's shades of uh, SNC-Lavalin here, right? Okay, right? And before the merger of SNC and Lavalin, Lavalin built the fabric cloth for the roof of the Olympic Stadium. So, uh, yeah, their malfeasance goes <laughs> way, way back. And then finally, number five, uh, Roski Limited, uh, a subsidiary of Bombardier, won a contract for providing seats for the games, even though its bid did not meet the specifications set by the city of uh, Montreal. And I think the whole mess is best summed up by Ian McDonald, who in... Uh, a 1978 Gazette column wrote, when it comes to commissions of inquiry, Quebec is truly not a province like the others. Government-appointed commissions in Ottawa and elsewhere often conform to the Canadian dictum of solving a problem by making it go away. 
Quebec inquiries typically assume a spectacular life of their own. Uh, Ian McDonald goes on to confirm what we already know. Public inquiries are spectacularly staged acts of political theater. They cost a lot of money and they usually wind up scapegoating the wrong people and sidestep solving real problems. In the case of the Malouf Commission, recommendations came on the eve of Montreal's municipal election. It found fault with Mayor Jean Drapeau and largely excused everyone else, including the uh, liberal provincial government in power at the time of the games, much to the dismay of uh, René Lavecque. And in the end, and here's the punchline, are you ready for it? Mayor Drapeau still managed to win the Montreal election. Clearly, clearly, the Malouf Commission didn't solve anything. Uh, just a couple of years ago, we had another construction inquiry in Quebec, the Charbonneau Inquiry, Charbonneau Commission. Uh, France Charbonneau is most uh, known for prosecuting the, um, the Robert Leblanc case in the murder of uh, Chantal Bruchou. And shortly uh, based on the success of Charbonneau's prosecution, she was promoted to a judge. And then later in her life, she headed the Charbonneau Commission into construction <laughs> contracts in Quebec. So clearly we learned, we learned nothing, right? And um, my, my father was an engineer, so he, he worked in construction. Um, uh, my dad, you know, but I don't, my dad was raised the Jesuit, so, um, you know, we didn't live in any mansion. We didn't have a boat, you know. We didn't have a second home or anything like that. We, we lived modestly within our means. So I, I don't think my father was doing anything shady, but he did, um, you know, we've talked over the years, and he told me, I mean, he was working, uh, he worked in Setil's, uh He uh, he, he certainly... James Bay wasn't his project, but he would go to James Bay. So he, you know, he he worked in that environment. And he said on the site, on any construction site in that era, there was always a guy, like a bagman. There was one guy there with a briefcase full of money, right? And it was his responsibility to grease the wheel, you know, if... You weren't getting the permits fast enough. You called on that guy. If somebody gave you trouble, you called on that guy, the guy with the the briefcase of cash. And it was uh, it was it was the simple reality. I mean, I you know, my dad's no Puritan. I think everybody was getting fat um, off um, this relationship, and, and including us. I mean, my dad did have a like a an expense account. Um, he was uh, pretty much ordered uh, by his company on a uh, like a on a monthly basis. They said you take your family out to a, f- a good restaurant on Friday nights, you know, at the end of the month or something. So and so we'd go to these really expensive restaurants in 
in Montreal, the Toisage, Ruby Foos, Piazza, Tommaso, uh, the Contiki uh, in the Mount Royal uh, Hotel, right? So this, this was just the reality uh, of the landscape in, uh, in Quebec um, in that era. Poitras and uh, Sarté du Québec. The Allo Police editor, André Perrin, he always had a knack for seeing the big picture. Um, and I think uh, some of his words on the history of the Sarté du Québec will help to clarify some things. So um, this is, uh, is uh, uh, André Perrin. Back in the 50s, there were uh, uh, Premier Duplessis police force. It was that simple. In the 60s, they called in police from the RCMP to reform the SQ's practices. And some distance from the politicians was established. But then the Parti Québécois came along and maybe wanted to have their own police nationale, an independent Quebec. Finally, before they went from one brand of political interference to another, the SQ cut itself off and said, we'll no longer be at the mercy of politicians, and found a way to work outside government control. And now we have to ask ourselves, if the SQ is not functioning as a state within a state, when it reached the point where no one felt they had to tell the public security minister they were moving in at Oka. And shit, now I got to go into Oka. Uh, <laughs> and it, it would take several podcasts to talk about the Oka crisis in the 19, early 1990s. Um, I'll simply just summarize it this way. It was... Uh, the town of Oka is outside of Montreal, and uh, the town, the mayor, wanted to expand its nine-hole golf course into an 18-hole golf course. And the land they wanted to move into was sacred ground belonging to the First Nations uh, Mohawk uh, um, tribe. So this caused a big crisis. There was a confrontation and a roadblock. As I said earlier, uh, uh, SQ officer is uh, uh, is killed in that in that confrontation. Um, but uh, what Perrin is really talking about here is is who pulled the trigger on on sending the SQ in there. Um, uh, many would say that what the, the force they sent was overkill. It was between 200 and I think 300 people, uh, officers. Um, but there is some question. I, I would, I would question whether I, on, on, in some accounts, yes, the, 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 some will say the SQ acted with, without consultation to the government and just went, 
I've heard it another way. I've I've heard that actually uh, then um, I think I think this um, public security minister was Claude Ryan and the liberals in power was Robert the premier was Robert uh, Barassa and that they actually did pull the trigger uh, because they wanted a distraction because they were in the midst of another language or constitutional crisis. So they wanted a, a, a distraction to, <laughs> so no one would, would you know, say, look over here, because over here we're diddling around and we're not going to agree uh, to any kind of compromise with the rest of Canada. That's, that's it. That's how Canada works. So, John, what was the Maddox affair? You've been jawing on for 20 minutes. Okay, we're, we're almost there. We're almost there. But first, you need a little more background. Stay with me. Stay with me. Uh, you you, you got to know, okay, who were the Maddox? So uh, the, the Maddox family um, were, uh, you know, allegedly part of a gang called the West End Gang. It was an Irish gang, uh, not, not just the Maddox family, other uh, Irish families, but they became the representation eventually of the um, of the West End gang. Uh, and I, I think originally they lived in the Goose Island neighborhood uh, over by Griffithtown, um, uh, Griffithtown and the Victoria Bridge uh, near uh, Point Saint-Charles, Sharon Pryor neighborhood, that kind of area. Goose Island was eventually, it was raised, it was destroyed to make way for, you know, urban renewal and the uh, uh, World's Fair, Expo 67. And I think the Maddox eventually, where they lived, it was in the NDG area. And they they got their start very traditionally, uh, you know, robberies, breaking any entries, hijackings, snatch and grab kind of stuff. Um, and they eventually evolved into uh, prostitution, illegal gambling, loan sharking, extortion, and drugs. Right? So you have these guys. And then you also have the mafia, who, right, the, uh, the Rizzuto family, the Catroni family. And they control sort of the importation of drugs, the Italian Mafia, and the Italian Mafia lives around the Cartierville area, North Montreal. Um, so you got you got them, and then you have the Hell's Angels, right? Who lived, you know, uh, I don't know wherever the fuck they wanted. But the Hell's Angels country is traditionally known as Hachalaga and Maisonneuve, uh, east east part of Montreal. So you have have these four entities uh, interacting, right? And um, uh, conflict, confrontation, but the Maddox were kind of always seen as, as sometimes peace brokers between rivals. Um, and eventually a, a relationship evolved between the Irish West End gang, the Italian mafia and the Rizzutos and the Hell's Angels uh, motorcycle gang these three entities established um dominance in organized crime in montreal so what was the maddox affair 
In May of 1994, police charged two leaders of the West End gang, Gerald and Richard Maddox and five others, with importing 26.5 tons of hashish valued at a street value of $360 million. And it was hidden in a container ship called Thor, sailing under a Norwegian flag from Uganda and Mozambique. Uh, that was docked in the port of Montreal. A joint effort with the Sarté de Québec, the RCMP, and the Montreal Police Force, Operation Thor was initially ruled a great success and was highly publicized in the media. Um, And at that time, it was reported as being the largest drug bust ever conducted in Canada. However, Operation Thor did not go as planned. Police initially placed the container ship under surveillance with the intention of sweeping up suspects when they showed up to pick up the containers. But that plan went sideways when no one showed up to claim delivery. So at this point, the police, they decide to seize their drugs And they mount a large-scale police operation consisting of a a series of raids on homes and businesses in the hopes of gathering further evidence that would link more suspects to the drugs. Police seized uh, an impressive amount of documents and evidence, including $800,000 in cash uh, from the home of Gerald Maddox. One piece of the evidence were shipping waybills that were said to have been seized from the offices of a custom brokerage, uh, Werner Phillips International. But it turned out that, in fact, these waybills had been planted by police. The documents had actually been faxed to the Sarté du Québec three weeks before the raids by Canada Customs. The Sarté de Québec claimed it was all a genuine mistake, but um, the judge, uh, Michel Corbet uh, Laramé, she wasn't buying it. Reviewing the evidence, Judge Corbet Laramé threw out the case on the grounds that the four waybills gathered by investigators had probably been tampered with and planted upon which Quebec's public security minister, Serge Menard, demanded a full explanation from the Sarté du Québec. Menard preferred an external inquiry, but the Sarté du Québec decided to handle the matters themselves with internal affairs. In the summer of 1998, Bernard Arsenault, Louis Baudreau, and Hilaire Isabel are appointed to conduct this internal probe to, quote, shed light on the responsibility of members of the Sarté du Québec in respect of a drug importation case better known as the Maddox Affair, end quote. And I know, I know, I know what you're thinking here. It's like, John, stop talking you're giving me an ice cream headache with all the words i'm almost done i'm almost done i promise (sighs) even before the first witnesses 
were questioned, the internal investigation, it was doomed to failure. Isabel would later testify that at a cocktail party later that summer, he, summer, he was accosted by top SQ officials who tried to intimidate him into backing off from the investigation. Uh, Isabel reported this incident to the head of the SQ, Serge Barbeau, and Barbeau does nothing later arguing unconvincingly that he didn't want to interfere with the investigation. Frustrated with the, this pointless mission, the, these three investigators, Arsenault, Isabel, and Boudreau, would eventually file a motion in Quebec Superior Court asking for a public inquiry. The three lost that court bid and were rewarded by being suspended indefinitely Eventually, Barbeau steps down as head of the Sarté du Québec, and he's temporarily replaced with a civilian, Guy Calandre, who then launches the Poitras Commission. Um, and as a footnote before we continue, uh, the original... Uh, Sarté du Québec officers from those uh, Maddox raids in 1994, Pierre Duclos, uh, Michel Paltry, Danny Fafard, and Lucien Landry were suspended and eventually charged with perjury and fabrication of evidence. And then in the summer of 1996, they're all acquitted and they get their jobs back. Yep, yep, that's the way it works. The Poitras Commission consisted of three members. Lawrence Poitras, uh, Louise Viau, and André Perrault. Their initial investigations uh, studied many past inquiries, not only uh, local affairs such as the Oka crisis, the Chambly report, the Belmare SQ inquiry, but extended outside the province, um, the Campbell report on the indictment of Paul Bernardo, the Wood report on the New South Wales police, the Giuliani and Barton report concerning corruption within the New York City police. The public hearings commenced on April 14, 1997, and consisted of testimonies and filings of 891 exhibits and 65,000 pages of evidence. The final report, released to the public on January 28, 1999, consisted of four or five volumes um, in a book entitled Report of the Public Inquiry Commission Appointed to Inquire into the Sarté du Québec Toward a Police at the Service of Integrity and Justice. Crisis of values has shaken the Sûreté de Québec from the beginning of this decade. The concepts of loyalty, integrity, and equality are poorly understood 
Any criticism of the organization or its practices made by a member seem suspect. Some uh, uh, highlights of the, the report. I actually, I have, um, I don't have the full report. I have the summary and recommendations. I've had it for some time. Uh, and uh, some of the some of the high it's you know, it's there's a lot um, but some of the highlights um, the Quebec didn't have a mission statement. <laughs> oh my god! Okay, uh, witnesses were often threatened. One investigator said to a witness, "I'll tell you something. How it works with the Quebec. Drugs get planted in your car. The police are called, and you're screwed." Police officers were uh, pressured into testifying in court so as not to lose a case. Uh, the report painted a picture of a police force that was reluctant to use new investigative procedures, um, that a law of silence existed in the force similar to, the, uh, similar to those found in organized crime. And the report blasted um, Operation uh, Carcajou, uh, Wolverine, Operation Wolverine. This was a big deal. Uh, this is a, it was a joint task force set up to end the, the biker war that started the summer of 1994 in, in Montreal and in Quebec. Um, and uh, Poitras found that uh, Operation Carcajou was a colossal waste of money. <laughs> Uh, the commission wrote that Operation Carcajou was uh, characterized by dysfunctional relationships, clashing egos, and uh, bureaucratic infighting with, uh, with the Montreal police, uh, only interested in making uh, a power grab, and the RCMP and the Sûreté de Québec only interested in ensuring that the blame for the continuing biker war fell on the uh, other service. Um, the... Uh, uh, Poitras made a, a hundred and seventy-five recommendations, which is uh, kind of mind-blowing. I mean, we just had, uh, you know, earlier this summer, the uh, murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls report was released in Canada. Um, that had two hundred and thirty-ish recommendations, but that was for all of Canada, right? This is for one force uh, in in one province. Um, it's, there's just there's too many to, to list, but some of the 175 uh, recommendations um, uh, they asked for a civilian oversight board. Uh, certainly in the uh, in in the current era, that that is a common theme, and just it's it's interesting because they were calling for it back in the 1990s that is never going to happen with the Sûreté de Québec and even if it is it's going to be a, a group of puppet civilians it's never going to have any teeth in response to a comment made by public security minister Menard that uh, there's a strange conviction among SQ officers that to apply the law and justice you must sometimes go around the law so in response to that, a 24-hour legal counseling service should be set up to advise police officers 
what was legal and what was not. <laughs> what is what is like? <laughs> what is it, phoning your AA partner or something like that? I'm in trouble. I I don't know if I'm breaking the law. <laughs> I mean, isn't that why you're supposed to go to Nicolette to the police academy? Um, that's always been my understanding. You, you you go, you know, for like three months of training. You're given a book that includes the law. You you kind of know it chapter and verse. I don't know what I'm doing. Help! It's two in the morning, and I'm you know I'm doing surveillance. Should I break in or not? <laughs> uh, the final thing that. Uh, it said, well, this relates to the prior comment, more resources uh, needed to be allocated to ensure proper training and that criminal investigators have university degrees. Um, I I think the Poitras Commission, it was a big deal at the time, but I think it left, the, the I think the point of, all the effort is that it left more questions than it finally answered. Uh, the report ends with the very ominous words, who is policing the police? Or any of these recommendations were implemented. I mean, who can say the Quebec police are not um, uh, traditionally known for their transparency? I, I think the better question to ask in the aftermath of Poitras is: uh, Did anything change? And I think I, I think it's a matter of uh, opinion. Uh, you know, I, I I still will cite blunders like. Uh, the Cedrica Provence case, right? Uh, on the other hand, um, in my experience, you know, some of the uh, the investigators I've dealt with are are much better um, educated. I mean, I know some guys uh, with ESQ who master's degrees, highly intelligent, very professional. And uh, on the other hand, there's still some knuckle knuckleheads there. Um, you know, for me. Um, uh, you know the seventies informed this situation in the nineties, and then, and then turn and turn the nineties inform everything that comes after. And for me, I I didn't become aware of uh, Maddox Poitras until after the events. I became aware of that I think around two thousand and five. So for me, a real awakening went when I first started investigating Teresa's murder, like in 2001, like I, my epiphany was like, say, the, these cops in the seventies weren't really good. And you know, they're still not good today. You know, what's going on here? <laughs> I was naive. Uh, it, it wasn't until later. It was like it was like, duh! Everyone knows that uh, we wasted practically a decade navel gazing at the whole problem. Um, 
you know, the, and the lesson in this, you, you know, well, if they didn't listen to Lawrence Poitras, um, uh, if they didn't listen to 50 years of advocating from the Dupont brothers, uh, then how were they, how were they ever going to listen to me? That's, that's my personal takeaway from the entire mess. The pigs have won tonight They can all sleep soundly And everything is alright So let's, let's sum this up. So the police see some drugs, right? And they appear to have a good case but they screw it up almost like they didn't need the way bills. They didn't need to, you know, and what do the way bills mean? Well, probably what they wanted to do was take a, a document and, you know, you know, and, 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 you know, and to forge it, they'd put these drugs come from Mozambique and drug Lord in Mozambique's name is at the from part. And then in the to front part is, Gerald and Richard Maddox. I mean, you know, that's a little obtuse, but that's kind of what they were, I would imagine was the intention behind it. But they didn't need that. They didn't need to do that. It was like overkill. They, if they had been patient and just waited, somebody would have shown up and picked up the containers. Um, uh, that, that, that is the core of this whole matter. And, and yet, and yet, it, it leaves you feeling kind of empty and, and unfulfilled and confused. Um, the the saga of the Poitras affair, 20 years later, it's been 20 years, still, for me, seems like a shadow play. Um, so Quebec spends five years and, and $30 million on a public inquiry. And what did anyone get for it, right? It, it, it feels like, like a kitten with a ball of yarn or something. I mean, what... What, what, what were we ultimately talking about anyway? I mean, certainly not just uh, this 1994 drug bust in the port of Montreal. I mean, was that standing in for something else? There's, there's 175 recommendations here, but, but most of them were never implemented, in, including the main recommendation for civilian oversight. Uh, the hearings uh, had this feeling of kabuki theater, right? Everything staged, everything choreographed. Uh, and it's like, is there some kind of hidden language here that was was never deciphered? Who has the decoder ring? Did you ever feel like you're missing major pieces of the puzzle? We, we may never get to the bottom of Maddox and Portress, but um, let me just summarize how I think this is all symbology of how the entire criminal justice engine churns in Quebec. The Italian mafia controls the importation of drugs coming into the city of Montreal. The Irish mob controls the port that's receiving the drugs, and the bikers are in charge of the, the distribution. In addition, the mafia controls construction, and the bikers get prostitution. The politicians are beholden to all three because they're supplied with drugs and prostitutes. Not all of them, some of them. And also kickbacks from construction contracts. 
And so the politicians constantly find themselves in compromising situations or possibly setups orchestrated by the underworld or by rival politicians. And so the politicians, in turn, are also beholden to the police who constantly have to bail them out of these compromising situations. So your politicians are simply puppets working for the interests of the criminal industrial complex and at the mercy of the police force who now answer to no one and are more powerful than the leaders that are supposed to govern them. Back in the day, uh, the offices of Allo Police were right across the street from the Sereté de Quebec headquarters on Parthenay, um, about where the, where the car the Sarté de Quebec's car impound lot is today. So I think that I think that tells you a lot, right? Um, the way I heard, you know, if you look at um, uh, Allo Police would write about, you know, crime, obviously. Um, and, you know, if they were talking about sexual murders, uh, the police were like heroes in that story. And the murderer was just low-life scum. No one was ever going to stand up for a murderer of women, you know, not, not the mafia, not, not, not the bikers and no one, no one. Those guys, if they're prosecuted and put in prison, their life was going to be pretty, pretty miserable. But whenever our low police covered like, uh, like an organized crime story, right. Or the bikers or the mafia, the, 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 the criminals were, were depicted at every inch as heroes as the, uh, as the police officers, that's a fact. And uh, there's even stories of crime bosses coming into the offices of a low police um, and saying to them, hey, I don't like the way you told that story. You, next time, tell it right. right? They're, they're edit, editorializing their depiction in, uh, in the low police. And so were the police, for that matter. I mean, for Christ's sakes, the office was across the street from the police headquarters. So for me, Sarte uh, back, it's like a like a series of Matryoshka dolls. You know, you you peel the onion and you just get a smaller version of the same doll revealed. Uh, I mean, we we spent thirty million dollars over forged documents and some intimidating words at a cocktail party. Really, you know, it's like we're all chained in a cave, watching silhouettes on the rock wall. Who watches those watchmen? This is Who Killed Teresa. Uh, if, if you like the podcast, please rate us highly on whatever your listening platform is. Uh, Stitcher, Spotify, um, SoundCloud, uh, iTunes. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at I'm at Justice Guy J U S T U S G U Y. Also at Teresa Allure at T H E R. Let's start again at T H E at T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E at Teresa Lore. 
that's the handle for the podcast specific. Uh, you can follow us um, on uh, Facebook. There's a site. Um, uh, I don't know. It's Teresa Allure, the podcast. Uh, there's an Instagram account, although I can't recall its name. I don't know. <laughs> Go searching. Um, uh, the website is the, the most, I think, the, the, the your best bet. It's just TeresaAllure.com. T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E. Point com. Uh, there's not a lot of visual material for today's episode. Um and I'm constantly taking content down uh, for reasons um, I think the sticky header explains. Um, there is a nice photo of uh, Andre Perrin, um, photo of uh, the Maddox brothers, uh, photo of Lawrence Poitras. <laughs> what if Lawrence Poitras was a trading card? I got Lawrence Poitras. No. Oh, man, you completed the set. I got Franz Charbonneau. What? Well, uh, I got Maloof. Collect all 36 commissioners of Quebec Public Inquiries. <laughs> all right, that's enough. That's enough. This is Who Killed Teresa. I'm your host, John Allure. Have yourselves a great, great day.
We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks.